Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church of Chula Vista, California. We invite you to open up your Bibles as we join Pastor Gary Bowman for today's message. Well, good morning to you. Uh, let's open up to the Gospel of Mark uh, there. And we're going um, to look at a Jesus story this morning in Mark chapter 5. And uh, it's, it's really uh, not just one story, it's, it's a Jesus story that turns into two Jesus stories. And, um, and when we look at these stories together, what we're going to discover is what we discover when we read any of Jesus' stories, is that it's this, that Jesus keeps going to the wrong people. That from our vantage point, when we read Jesus' story, Jesus is always going to the wrong people. And we're going to see that again in this story that's in Mark 5. And this story, or stories, or story within a story, this story is recorded in three of the Gospels. It's in, it's in Matthew, and it's in Luke, and it's here in Mark. So this is, it, it's a significant story that three of the Gospel writers said, we need to record and tell you and, so that you'll remember this story. So Mark chapter 5, uh, we're going to start at verse 21. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So Jesus is at this lake. Uh, it's sometimes called a lake. It's sometimes called a sea. A sea of Galilee, Lake of Galilee. It has about four different names, actually. And it is a, it is a absolutely beautiful freshwater lake. And some of us here at Paseo have been able to go walk around that lake and put our swim in that lake and go on a boat on that lake. And, and you can see why Jesus chose to spend most of his ministry on or around this lake. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a huge lake. It's, uh, it's about eight miles across, east and west. So from about Coronado to East Lake, maybe. So that's this is not Lake Murray, it's not East Lake, but it's from about Coronado to out to East Lake, and then north-south, it's from about here to about Claremont. It's about 13 miles or so north and south. So it is this hub of community and of towns and of commerce and farming and fishing in Jesus' day as it is today. So Jesus he's there on the lake, he's gone across it, he's come back, and as usual around this lake, there are crowds of people who are surrounding Jesus. They're right there with him. So he's landed again, he's on the western shore of the the Sea of Galilee now, and and there's this crowd of people that are pressing in upon him. And so we come to verse 22. Then, one of the synagogue leaders, uh uh-oh, 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 I mean, any time in the Gospels, most every time in the Gospels, when a synagogue leader shows up with Jesus, it is not good news, right? They, um, they're coming because um, uh, they're coming to bring bad news to Jesus because they're like, they are tweaked at Jesus because Jesus is always hanging around the wrong people, right? They don't understand this, the synagogue uh, leaders. Jesus, he hangs around with, um, well, who are some of the bad people Jesus hangs around with? Some of the wrong people. Who are they? Tax collectors, prostitutes, Democrats. Uh, No, no, that's not in the text. Uh, Who else does he hang out with? What was it? 
I didn't hear that, but I want to hear it. Republicans. Rick, I appreciate a godly man like you being here. I thought you said publicans, and I know he wouldn't hang out with them. He, he hung around with Dodger fans, even, right? He hung around with women who had been married four times and now were shacking up with the fifth dude, right? He hung around um, people that were addicted. He hung around people who had dysfunction in their life, right? And, and, and so the leaders of the synagogue, they did not like this one bit. That Jesus, stay away from those people. Get away from those people. And, and, and so usually when a synagogue leader came to Jesus, it, it was not good news, right? It was to bring some condemnation upon Jesus. So then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came... And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now that is huge. That is really, really weird. And this Jairus, the text tells us, was a leader, or some of your versions have, he was the president of the synagogue. Now, you need to understand what the synagogue was in that community. It was the only Starbucks in town. It was the center of everything, the community. These were Jewish communities. There were no Gentiles living in these communities. So the, the whole town, a couple hundred people maybe, um, all concentrated around the synagogue. And so the president, the leader of the synagogue, he is perhaps the most respected and honored and revered person in that town. He would be like the the mayor of a small town. He would be like the captain of the football team. He's the big kahuna. Everyone knows him. Everyone stands out of the way when he comes by. And if in that community there was an honor scale, you know, like a thermometer scale of honor, Jairus would be at the very top of the scale as the most important, the most honorable, perhaps the best person in all of the community. So, why is it that this leader of the synagogue and the other leaders of the synagogue are always critical of Jesus for hanging around with the wrong people? Why is it that Jairus, this respected man, comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet? Man, there is something going on here, right? And it's that a crisis has come into Jairus' life. And crisis has a way of leveling us, doesn't it? Of taking us down off the top of the chart and bringing us down to the bottom. Um, crisis, troubles, suffering. It, it, it's kind of like when you go into the hospital. If you're modest, don't go to a hospital. Right? Because you just lose all modesty. And, and crisis and trouble and pain and suffering, they do this to us, don't they? They, and, and, and crisis and trouble and pain and suffering can make us realize how desperate we are and how needy we are and how our, our appearance on the honor scale doesn't matter a bit in the big picture. And it made this man understand, Jairus understand, how desperate he was for Jesus. Crisis and trouble and suffering can be your friend if we let it drive us to Jesus 
as it did here in Jairus' life. So then one of the synagogue rulers, verse 22, leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. He said, my little daughter is dying. Please come, Jesus, and please, Jesus, put your hands on her. There's a lot of touch in this section, this story, these stories. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and so she will live. And Jesus went with him. Now, Luke, in his telling of this story, tells us an interesting thing. This is not only his little daughter who he loves, but Luke tells us it was his only daughter. The dads, moms, you can just imagine this man's angst and his pain as he, as he in his mind, sees his only daughter. And by the way, later it will tell us in the story she's 12 years old. He sees his 12-year-old daughter in his mind laying flat perhaps on her bed, motionless, motionless lifeless, Maybe she has that ashen look about her. Her eyes are hollowed out. And what he wants more than anything for her is to sit up and to laugh again and to breathe deeply again and get up out of her sick bed and, and, and play and work and interact. But no, in his mind is this picture of his daughter who is dying. And because... He's such an important man. Obviously, his daughter is really an important daughter. Not only to him, but probably to everyone there in the culture, everyone there in the, in the community. So, it says there at the end, of, very beginning of verse 24, so Jesus went with him. Now, remember there's a crowd, right? And I can imagine that Jairus grabs the hand of Jesus, and his house is over there somewhere. That's where his daughter is. And he's, the seaside is here. And he's grabbed Jesus by the hand. He says, let's go. But there's this, this, this crowd of people that are all around. So Jesus went with her and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Pretty much everyone here, pretty much everyone here has been to Disneyland. And, and, and I love to stay at Disneyland until it closes. I want to get all the money I can get out of, worth out of that place. And so if it's 9 o'clock closing or if it's midnight closing or whatever time it is it's closing, you know, you get the last ride on the Matterhorn, you get the last ride on the teacups, whatever it is, and then what do you do? You begin to exit Disneyland and you, everybody goes out the same way, right? Out through what street? Main Street. And like Main Street, when Disneyland is closing, is like the crowdest crowdest place in the world, right? You know, and you're bustling and you're pushing and we've lost two or three kids there coming out of Disneyland before. They've never come back to look for us, by the way. They've just gotten stuck in Disneyland the rest of their lives. But you know how crowded that is? Or walking through the crowd at Comic-Con or coming out of a ballpark and, and you're just crushed up against people all around you. And so Jairus has Jesus by the hand. And imagine Jairus grabbed his hat that says, synagogue leader, important person, president of the community. And he's got it on his hand. He's saying, clear the way. We're going to see my daughter. And then there is an interruption in the procession. There is a barging in and there is a story within the story that becomes the real story. Verse 25. And a woman was there. Now, let me read it to you 
and try to translate it like it right from the original. Let me try to do that. Because there's seven participial phrases here. This is very unusual for Mark to use in the participial phrases, what an ing word, right? Showing this ongoing action. And, and this is very unusual for Mark to pile up participles one after another after another. Seven in two verses. Let me try to read it to you as, as, as the original readers might have heard it, something like this. And, the, and there was a woman being there and she was, had been continuously subject to continuous bleeding for 12 years. And she was suffering greatly under the caring of many doctors and had been spending all that she had. And yet, instead of getting better, she was continually getting worse. And so Mark does this so that we get this picture and we begin to empathize with this unnamed Jewish woman that for 12 years, as long, for as long as the little dying girl had been alive, this woman had been hemorrhaging. She had been nonstop bleeding. And we get the idea that it was, that it was painful and it was an agonizing. And so she went to one doctor and they tried one thing and she went to another doctor and they tried another thing. She went to another doctor and they tried another thing. And these weren't just giving her pills. This was ancient basic medicine and, and, and imagine maybe some of the painfulness of even some of the procedures that she underwent to try to stop this bleeding. And so this woman had suffered physically for a dozen years of doctors probing and practicing and now she was flat broke and instead of being better than she was last year, she's worse than she was last year. And last year she was worse than she was the year before that. This woman, this woman is, 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 is down and she's out. And not only is she physically hurting, but she is in isolation. Because Leviticus tells us that a woman during her menstruation is unclean, ceremonially unclean, and she can't be around other people and she can't go to church. Because she's unclean and, if she, and she can't be in a crowd. She has to separate herself from her family. The reason being, according to Leviticus, is that because she is ceremonially unclean, if she even touches the hem of someone's garment, that person becomes unclean too. So her husband, or her children, or her grandchildren, or someone else at this, in the synagogue at, their, at the church, so this, she couldn't go to the store if she's menstruating. And this woman has been suffering from this hemorrhaging for 12 years without a break. So that means that she has not been to church in 12 years. She can't gather and worship. She can't gather and hear the Word. She can't gather and be with her friends. She can't gather socially. She hasn't been to a birthday party in over 12 years. She hasn't celebrated any of the great feasts of the nation of Israel in 12 years. I don't know what the situation was in her home, but somehow she had to separate herself from her, her own husband and her own children for 12 years. And now she is flat broke. She, 
if there was a if there was an honor scale in this town, this woman was at the very bottom. If there was an important scale in this town, this woman was at the very bottom. She was broken and unclean and unwelcomed. She had no friends. She probably had no family. She couldn't come to worship. She was undone and she knew it. And why in the world is she in this crowd at the lakeside? This is crazy. She had no right. If someone saw her, they could have reported her to the synagogue police and she would have been forced to evacuate. But somehow she snuck in among this crowd. And I imagine if people probably looked down at her and saw her, they jumped away. So maybe she disguised her face. Maybe she pulled her cloak over her face just to show her eyes so people wouldn't know who she was. Because if anyone would have seen her, they would have jumped back and screamed out that an unclean woman was in their midst and everyone would have jumped back from her as well. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind Him, behind Him in the crowd And she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. (laughs) Can you imagine this lady? She is like 12 years of nonstop bleeding. And suddenly, all of a sudden, it'd be like if you've had a migraine headache for 12 years. And you touch the robe of Jesus and the migraine just goes away. You're like, whoa, 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 is that, whoa, what is this? What's going on? She, she is just absolutely beside herself. Immediately, immediately, verse 29, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Oh, oh my goodness. The hallelujahs that must have gone up in her heart. The, 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 the praises to Jesus that must have gone up in, up, up in her heart. And now, now watch this. This is so cool. At once, verse 30, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and he said, he said who touched me? Who, who, who touched me? Now, Jairus has got one hand and he's pulling Jesus. And this lady sneaks up from behind and she just touches just with her hand the hem of his robe. And Jesus realizes this power is going to... I think he knew who it was. But I think he asked this question for us, for the, the audience there. So he says, he says, hey, wait, 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 Jairus. Slow down, Jairus. Now, if I'm Jairus, I'm like, uh-uh, no slowing down. My daughter, Jesus, did you see my hat? Do you notice who I am? I'm a very important, and this is if I'm Jairus. I'm a very important person. I'm up toward the honor, top of the honor roll here. Jesus, my daughter deserves you to come to her. And that's what I would have been saying. But Jesus stops. He says, no, no, hold your horses for a minute here, Jairus. Um, who was it that touched me? 
And his disciples are like, Jesus, we're on Main Street in Disneyland. Everybody's touched you. It's closing time. Everybody's touched you. In, in fact, I mean, they, they kind of mock Jesus. Uh, look at it there in verse, um, uh, verse 31. Um, you, you see the people crowding around you, the disciples ask, and yet you, you ask, what a silly question. Who touched me? Everybody's touched you. It's interesting that Luke tells us which of the disciples it was who said this to Jesus. And you can only guess which one Luke tells us that it was, right? I think you know his name pretty well. And Jesus, you see all these people, they're all crowding around you. Um, But Jesus, verse 32, kept looking around to see who had done it. And, and, And... sometimes when you're flying an airplane, uh, let's say you're flying to San Francisco or you're flying to Chicago or you're flying to Atlanta or whatever, and um, you're you're almost there and you can't wait because you've got loved ones there, you've got friends there, you've got a conference you're going to, you're really excited to get to wherever it is you're going. And as you're starting to make your approach, um, the pilot comes on and and what does he say? He says, ladies and gentlemen, when the pilot says that, it means you're in a lot of trouble, okay? That's code for you're going to be in the air a lot longer. So he says, ladies and gentlemen, we, um, um, we've just gotten a message from ground control that our gate is not yet ready down at Atlanta, Hartsford Airport or O'Hare. And I'm kind of like, whenever they say that, that the gate is not ready, it's like, didn't they know we were coming? I mean, I knew we were coming like three months ago when I bought the tickets for this plane, but they didn't get the news here at the airport that we're going to come and we're going to land. At, I knew what time. 5.32. Why do they say 5.32? I never get that. They knew exactly the minute we're going to come. And so the pilot says, what we're going to do now is we're going to what? We're going to circle. He says, for just a short couple of hours or so. You know, and one of the funny things, of course, is when they start circling, they don't let you get up from your seat, do they? And, you know, you haven't used the restroom because you thought you were going to arrive in Atlanta or Chicago or, or San Francisco. You know, like, and this, this thing that's just rotating around like for two hours, you just can't stand it. I think that's what it was like for Jairus, right? The plane is circling, and it's so serious because his daughter is dying. And he's a really, really important man, isn't he, Jairus is? And... and and he's like, Jesus, Jesus, just leave it. I'm the one that touched you, okay? Let's go. Let's just move forward here. What's the text tell us now? But Jesus, verse 32, kept looking around to see who had touched him. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, how Jesus had healed her instantly, came up and fell at his feet, just like Jairus had done, right? Trembling with fear, and she told him the whole truth. What was the whole truth? She was an unclean woman. That she shouldn't have been in the crowd. That she was at the bottom of the totem pole. That she had no money. That she had nothing to offer Jesus. She was isolated from people. She was shunned. People would stand away when she came through. She, she, was the, she was one of the wrong people. And, and that's what kept her away from Jesus was this fear 
that she wasn't good enough to be loved by Jesus. This is what kept her away from Jesus, that she thought she was so unclean that Jesus wouldn't care about her. This is what kept this fear that she had that by her being unclean, touching Jesus would make him unclean too. He says, you don't know what I do for people is I make the unclean clean. That's what I do. I take your uncleanliness upon me so that you can be clean. That's what he does on the cross. He says, I welcome and love unclean people. I welcome and love the wrong people. In fact, Jesus says, my love has nothing to do with who you are. My love has everything to do with who I am. See, that's grace. You know, what, what, what we buy into is that Jesus, is, Jesus will love us when we get our acts cleaned up. When we stop hemorrhaging. When we have more money. When we're at the top of the social pool. Jesus says, man, I come to people that are broken and I take their brokenness upon me on the cross so that they may be made whole. He says, this is what I do for people. This is, this is what I, I, I love to do for, for people. And so she came, and, and then, then the woman, verse 33 again, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth about herself. And look what Jesus says to her. I love this. I love this. He says to her, and I want you to understand this, that Jesus never says this to anyone else in the Bible. He never utters this word to anyone else in the Gospels. Daughter. He tells that crowd, I love her as if she were my own biological daughter. I wonder if he, if he looked at Jairus and said, I love her like you love your daughter. And I care about her. And the people in the crowd are probably going, yeah, but she's the wrong kind of person. This is why we're ticked at you, Jesus, because you hang around the wrong kind of people. You should be at the synagogue president's home by now. And yet you're hanging around this woman. And Jesus lovingly and tenderly says to her, daughter. It's the only person Jesus ever calls daughter in all the recorded Gospels that we have. Now, I've been telling you that if I were Jairus, what I would have done. But it's interesting to me in the story that Jairus is silent. Now maybe he said things, and they're not recorded, but Jairus is silent. And I wonder, all sermons are reviewable in heaven, right? I'm making a supposition here. I'm making a suggestion to you. I wonder if in Jairus' crisis that he realized it's not about how important I think I am. It's about Jesus. It's not about how clean I think I am. It's all about Jesus. It's not all about all the rules that I've kept and kept and kept. It's all about Jesus. I wonder if, 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 I think by his very coming and by his kneeling at Jesus' feet, the most important man in town, I wonder if Jairus was saying, 
I know I'm the wrong kind of person too. Jesus, would You pour out Your grace and Your mercy upon me? And I think that might be the case. Because this afternoon when you read the rest of the story, you're going to see Jesus after He circles the airport with this woman who He loves, not because there's anything lovely in her, but because there's all love in Him. That after He circles that airport and loves on her and says, your faith in receiving My grace, it's not faith in faith. It's not power of positive thinking, is it? It's faith in the grace that Jesus gives us. Undeserved. He says to the woman, your faith, you, you believe the grace that I've given you. Yeah, I love you. And after he does it, what you're going to read this afternoon is you're going to watch as Jairus, as Jairus and Jesus leave the crowd behind and go to Jairus' house. And Jesus there finds another daughter who's the wrong kind of person. And Jesus touches her and raises her to life as well. Jesus' love for you and Jesus' love for me is not about us. It's all about Him. And Jesus loves the wrong kind of people. And He invites the wrong kind of people to have dinner with Him. To come and take a piece of bread and to dip it in the juice. And the bread, He says, reminds me of my body that was broken for the wrong kind of people. And the juice reminds me of the blood that I shed for the wrong kind of people, for people like you and like me, for people who don't deserve any of this. Several years back here at Paseo del Rey, we were, became aware of a situation that there might be a baby coming into our nursery who might have HIV. And this was, this was just as HIV, AIDS, was kind of beginning to make the news, and most of us didn't know or understand very much about HIV or AIDS, but we were alerted that this baby might come to our nursery. And so, of course, we wanted to be as wise as we could, and we wanted to protect the baby and the baby's family. And we wanted to protect others, nursery workers and children and other babies and families, of course. And so one of the things we did is we got together, I got, I got together with a, uh, I've discovered a Christian uh, con- um, um, contagious, what's it called, Medi- uh, contagious medicines d- physician, specialist, and um, sat and talked with him about HIV AIDS to try to understand what the medical world knew about, particularly about the transmission of HIV. Because remember when it first broke, some of you remember those days, people feared that if someone coughed on you that had HIV, you would get it. Or if you were in the same room with someone that had HIV, you would get it. Or, you know, HIV is really difficult to get. It really is very, very difficult to get. You almost, unless there's an accident, you know, a, a pin prick, those kinds of things, you, you almost have to try to get it. You, you know what I'm saying? So um, 
But we didn't know any of that. And so as I sat and I talked with this uh, contagious medicine specialist, um, I, I, just, I need to confess to you that I, I, I had a horrible sin in my life. And I had, I had the beginnings of a thought that HIV AIDS was God's punishment to homosexuals. I thought, I, was, I, I, I wasn't convinced of that, but I was pondering that in my brain that that's what it was. And so I just said to the doctor, I said, I said well, it, do you think that HIV AIDS is a punishment for homosexual sin upon the homosexual community? And he looked at me, I think, he, I think it was kind of a pathetic look, and, and he said, well, if that's true, then why does this baby have HIV? Oh, I thought, well, maybe it's collateral damage. Like that Jesus was pushing, you know, shooting only at the homosexuals, but some people on the edge got hurt by it too. You know, I just saw the illogicalness of, of that kind of an argument, both socially and even more so theologically. And I, just, I had to repent of that kind of an attitude in my life. HIV is not God's punishment against the homosexual community. Because if it is, us heterosexuals should have been gone a long time ago, right? For our sins, right? Us gluttons, us gossips, right? Us people that are jealous and angry, right? Us that drink so much caffeine, we drug ourselves, right? We should have been gone a long time ago. So, I had to confess that sin. And then, so I, I, this guy's really helping me, enlightening me about how HIV is, is transmitted, you know, in a nursery, <laughs> you know, in a nursery setting. That it's probably not going to be transmitted, unless, what his words were, unless there was catastrophic blood loss by both people, by the person who has HIV and then the person that gets it. That, that's what he said to me. So I'm thinking, now... Now, HIV, though, does, the biggest population it affects is, is the homosexual population. And so I said to him, well, why is it that you're so concerned about these people? And that was an honest question that I had for him. And he, he looked at me again with that pathetic but Christian look, you know, that I needed to see. And he said, so let me get this straight, which is not a good thing, you know, the next thing that's coming, right? Let me get this straight. So you deserve Jesus' love more than these people do, huh? The huh is what got me. And that changed my life, that's that little conversation. You think because you're the most important person in town that you deserve more of God's love? You think you, because you're the pastor of a church, great church, awesome group of people, that you deserve God's love more? You think because you've punched all the right things? You think because you've never committed adultery? You think because um, you're white? You think because you're a heterosexual? You think because um, you read your Bible? You think... He didn't say this, but this is what he was saying behind it, probably when I went out of the room. You think you deserve more of God's love, don't you? 
Well, I think I do. Isn't that how the gospel gets so screwed up in us? Aren't we the, oftentimes the older brother in the prodigal son story? Your growth groups are going to go back and read on that this week. Bing, bing, bing. Father, here's what I've done. Done, done, done. He did it for himself. He didn't do it for his father. He did it for himself. So he'd be the most important son in the house. Jesus' love for us has nothing to do with who you are. Praise God. It has all to do with who He is. And He invites to this table. He invites all of us adulterers in mind that I've committed. He, inv- he invites all of you, all of us gossips. He invites all of us that are jealous. He invites all of us who eat too much and who drink too much. He invites all of us who think we're at the top of the honor scale. He invites those of us that have wrestled with homosexual thoughts or actions. He invites, he, he invites the broken. He invites the broke. He invites those that have read the Bible through every year for the last 30 years. He invites the people that don't, can't find the table of contents in their Bible to this table, right? He invites us because it's about His love and about His grace and about His rescue. And if you're here this morning and you've never understood God's grace for you and you think you're a Christian because you do this and this and this, let it go and bow before the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your mercy. It is only your mercy. Amen? And that's what we need to come, the way we need to come to these tables. And... Thank Him as you come to the table this morning that He always loves the wrong people. (laughs) And you are the wrong person. And I am too. Jesus, You are so incredible. Your grace and Your grace and Your grace generously and over and over and over again recklessly you pour your grace upon us. Jesus, would you remind us that your love is a love that has nothing to do with us, the loved, but it has everything to do only with you, the lover. Jesus, thank you that you love us as we come to this table. You invite us to this table to receive your forgiveness and to renew your Spirit's work in our lives that we might live differently full of your Spirit. That we might live in ways that bring you even more joy and bring you more pleasure and bring you more glory. Jesus, we come as the wrong people broken. And you love us. And you change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.